talk to you at the direction of the Holy Spirit about the separation of church and state. Uh, I want to direct the attention, your attention to this table over here that Pat Knott has done a good job setting up. Uh, it has a lot to do with the separation of church and state. There's a paper over there titled Separation of Church and State. I'd recommend that you get a copy on your way out and uh, take a look at it. Most people do not understand what that means. And they think it means something that it doesn't. Also, there are several other books over there that are good. There's one over there called The Role of Pastors and Christians in Civil Government. The Role of Pastors and Christians in Civil Government. Somebody said, well, I didn't think Christians were supposed to be uh, uh, involved in civil government. Well, you heard wrong. Um, We're supposed to be involved in civil government. And our voice is supposed to be heard in civil government. And uh, David Barton, who is out of Texas, he is the founder of Wall Builders Ministries. And uh, he has uh, some excellent uh, materials. Uh, there's some over there I'd recommend you take a look at. He is a, an expert on the founding of this nation and the founding fathers. And m- a lot of the information I'm going to share with you today, I didn't learn in high school because they taught me wrong in high school and in college. I have had a lot of American history classes. Uh, some of what they taught me was correct, but a lot of it was wrong, particularly as it pertains to the founding of this nation and the founding fathers and what they believed. And uh, so I would check out David Barton and, and his work. Much of what I'm going to share today, I got from him. Uh, he's real good at documenting things and not just saying something off of the cuff, but documenting most of his books, if you look at his books very carefully, like the, there's page after page, like a third of the book almost, is, is uh, documenting what he said, you know, in the book. And uh, so a lot of good, good things there um, from him. So the separation of church and state. What I want you to do, first of all, is go to 2 Corinthians, the 6th chapter and the 14th verse. The Apostle Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 6.14, he says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial, which is a false god? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has a temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I'll dwell in them and walk among them. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. I'll receive you. I'll be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, as you read that in Second Corinthians, it's clear that we're supposed to separate ourselves. The question comes up, what are we supposed to separate ourselves from? I mean, you could read that and make a conclusion that we're supposed to separate ourselves from sinners. You could conclude that. Or are we supposed to separate ourselves from sin? Well, that's pretty clear, but what about sinners? Well, the Bible isn't unclear at all, but yet as you read that, you might scratch your head and you might say, well, what did, what did Paul really mean by that? 
But all you have to do is go back to 1 Corinthians. Go back, see, go back to 1 Corinthians and go to the 5th chapter. See, go back. Realize, say, go back. Yeah, you got to go back to something that he had written before to get clarification. And in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Now look at verse 10. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. Well, see, he just clarified there. What he was talking about, he wasn't saying in 2 Corinthians that we should separate ourselves completely from sinners. No, we're supposed to be a light to sinners. We're not supposed to go off in some commune somewhere and separate ourselves from the, the world. Do you understand that? We need to, we need to be out in the, amongst the people and sharing the good news of Jesus with them, you see. But to understand what Paul said in 2 Corinthians, you had to go back to 1 Corinthians to really get the fullness of what he was saying. He said, he said in verse 10 again, certainly I did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous, extortioners, idolaters, since then you'd, you'd have to, you'd have to leave the world. Wouldn't you have to pretty well leave the world if you weren't gonna, you know, you understand? He wasn't talking about, you know, not going around sinners and so on and so forth. Verse 11, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. Who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner. Not even to eat with such a person. See, so he clarifies it further. If there's someone that calls themselves a Christian and they're practicing sin and sexual immorality and whatnot. You're not even supposed to go out to lunch with them. You see. You understand that? I mean, that's what, uh, that's what Paul is saying. But to get, to get what he really meant in 2 Corinthians, you had to go back to 1 Corinthians. And it's clear from what he said, we, we should... You know, be around sinners and share Jesus with sinners, but we shouldn't be running with them. You know what I mean by running with sinners? Just, 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 you know, going to the bars with them and, and being a partaker with their evil deeds. You understand that? Okay. But we're not supposed to separate ourselves and never have anything to do with them. Otherwise, we'd have to leave the world, you know. You clear on that? And the point I'm trying to make is, is to understand what Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians, you had to go back to 1 Corinthians. And the same thing is true with the separation of church and state. The separation of church and state. In the modern day, if you say separation of church and state, most people, I'd say the majority, I'd say about 99 Point nine 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 out of a hundred would say that the separation of church and state is to keep the church from expressing itself in that which is state sponsored, like public schools, etc. Correct? You ask most people, what is separation of church and state? They'd say, well, you know, we got to keep the church from expressing itself in that which is state sponsored. Like the public schools. Like a Christian shouldn't get up in the public school and, and pray, you know, over a ceremony or whatnot. That's what people think separation in church of state is there for. But that's incorrect. That's what I was taught in high school. That's incorrect. Originally... To really understand separation of church and state, you have to go back to the founders of the nation and understand 
what was going on and what they were talking about. Originally, separation of church and state was to keep the government out of the functions of the church, not the other way around. I want to read this to you from this paper that's over there. Just I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just a paragraph or two. Listen to this. Separation of church and state is a common metaphor that is well recognized. Equally well recognized is the metaphorical meaning of the church staying out of the state's business and the state staying out of the church business. Because of the very common usage of the separation of church and state phrase, most people incorrectly think that the phrase is in the Constitution. The phrase, wall of separation between the church and state, was originally coined by Thomas Jefferson in a letter to the Danbury Baptists on January 1st, 1802. His purpose in this letter was to ease the fears of the Danbury Baptists. And so he told them that this wall had been erected to protect them. The metaphor was used exclusively to keep the state out of the church's business Not to keep the church out of the state's business. You need to understand that. The Constitution states, and actually the First Amendment, says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Both the free exercise clause and the establishment clause place restrictions on the government concerning laws they pass or interfering with religion. No restrictions are placed on religion, on religions except perhaps that a religious denomination cannot become the state religion. You see, the separation of church and state, the original intent of that was to keep the government out of the church's business, not to keep the church out of the government's business. Did you get that? Yes. Did I make that clear to you? Today, the way it's understood is just the opposite. They think separation of people think the separation of church and state is to keep the church out of government business, but originally it was to keep the government out of the church's business. And it's there really to keep the government from establishing a state religion, which you you, you don't want that to happen. That happened in the fourth century in Rome under Constantine, where the Roman emperor supposedly became a Christian and he made Christianity the religion of the state. And we're still, we're, we're still dealing with that mess today. Because you see, what happened there is paganism mixed with Christianity. Prior to the fourth century, in the first three centuries, you had to get born again. You had to become, be a believer upon the Lord Jesus Christ to become a member of the church. You understand that? But in the fourth century, under Constantine, all you had to do was be a, Ro- a Roman citizen and you were automatically called a Christian. That puts a lot of people in hell, dear brothers and sisters. Because people think they're Christians when they're not. And you get paganism, paganism and a lot of the ritual of paganism mixed in with Christianity. See, the devil saw in the first three centuries that he couldn't beat this church. So guess what he did? If you can't beat them, join them. And that's what he did in the fourth century. He joined the church, essentially. The devil did. Do you understand that? So you don't want the state to exact a religion upon the people. But you do want Christians involved in government... And really, as you'll see by the time we get to the end, the way that this government here, this republic works best is when Christians are in positions of authority. 
when you have born again, spirit filled. I'm talking to somebody talks in tongues sitting in the Oval Office. You hear what I just said? And in a vice presidential mansion, you see, and, and the speaker of the house and, 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 and the, the, the head of the Senate and so on and so forth. You see, wouldn't that be wonderful? And all the way down, have school board officials born again, filled with the Holy Ghost, speaking in tongues, praying at the beginning of the day, you know, in the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, you say, oh, we couldn't have that. Why not? They did in the early days of this founding of this country, as we're going to see. We've allowed the devil to steal something really wonderful from us. Did you hear what I just said? In the last 50 years, as I've said, the way separation of church and state has been wrongfully exhibited by the secular non-religious community has been as a stick with which to beat the church into a corner. To keep the church from expressing itself in governmental affairs. To keep the church under control. An apparatus to keep the church bound within its four walls. To silence preachers from speaking against political ills such as abortion or same-sex marriages. That's what has happened in the last 50 years. It began to change as we'll see it as I go along here around 1963. Notice Deuteronomy 32 verse 7. Deuteronomy 32 verse 7 says this. Remember the days of old. And that's what I am going to do my best to do in the rest of this message is let's remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he'll show you your elders and they'll tell you. I want to remember the days of old and go back and look at the intent of the founders of the United States concerning church and state. Concerning church and state. And what did the founders believe? Now. In the back of your bulletin, you can just please don't start reading that now, but just realize that it's there and read it later. There's some quotes there concerning some of the founding fathers. There's one there from George Washington that says it is impossible to rightly govern a nation without God and the Bible. They never told me that in high school or college when I took American history. George Washington, in his first general order to his troops, General Washington called on every officer and man to live and act as becomes a Christian soldier defending the dearest rights and liberties of his country. As a Christian soldier. Christian soldier. Some argue these... uh, You know there's a lot of people teaching in universities, these professors, they're educated beyond their intellect. And they'll tell you, well, the founders were, quote unquote, deists. And you have to really check that word out, but without getting too much into it, it a deist basically believes that God just basically set everything, supreme being set everything in and just kind of wound the clock up and has removed himself and just let, letting the clock run down, letting the universe take its own course, etc. But, and they'll tell you that, you know, based on that, that these founders weren't Christians. But that's not right. You have to go back and look at what these founders wrote, the writings that they wrote, and the documents that they wrote. Listen to this from George Washington's personal prayer book. Let me read this and you decide whether or not he loved 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. A Sunday night entry went like this. This is Washington writing in his prayer book. O most glorious God, in Jesus Christ, my merciful and loving Father, I acknowledge and confess my guilt in the weak and imperfect performance of the duties of this day. I have called on thee for pardon and forgiveness of sins. Let me live according to those holy rules which thou hast this day prescribed in thy holy word. Make me to know... What is, the accept, what is acceptable in thy sight and therein to delight. Open the eyes of my understanding and help me thoroughly to examine myself concerning my knowledge, faith, and repentance. Increase my faith and direct me to the true object, Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Bless, O Lord, all the people of this land, from the highest to the lowest, particularly those whom thou hast appointed to rule us in church and state. Continue thy goodness to me this night. These weak petitions I humbly implore thee to hear. Accept an answer for the sake of thy dear son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. George Washington praying in the name of the Lord Jesus. Oh, yeah. They didn't tell me that when I took history in high school and college. John Adams, the second president of the United States pointed to preachers, listen to this, and held them responsible for the blessings on America. Did you hear that? You say, well, why did he do that? Because every point set forth in the Declaration of Independence was preached from the pulpits of America prior to the induction of the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence is a result of preachers' sermons preaching righteousness from the Word of God. The first meeting of Congress opened with prayer. But not a two-minute prayer. Not a five-minute prayer. They prayed for well over two hours. John Adams said that they studied several chapters of the Bible and he came back and he was stirred up about Psalms 35. Don't go read it now, but read it sometime later today. Psalms 35. He was so stirred up, he came home and told Abigail, his wife, and she was a born again child of God. And he came home and, 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 and she, he was so stirred up about it. And, and he, 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 basically he said, we can actually win the American Revolution. And he, he, he based it on Psalm 35. And he called for a continental fast, asking for God's blessings upon America. During the American Revolution, Congress was called, or Congress called the people to prayer and fasting 15 times. Could you ever see a president calling the nation to prayer and fasting in the time in which we live? But yet during the American Revolution, Congress called the people to prayer and fasting 15 times. Actually, what would happen is when things weren't going so good, they would call, uh, the Congress would call for prayer and fasting. The people of the land of the United States would pray and fast. Things would turn around on the battlefield and then they would call for a time of prayer and thanksgiving for what God had done on the battlefield. And then, when they'd get into a rough time again, they'd call, the Congress would call the United States to a time of prayer and fasting. 
And then God would move in a great way, miraculous way, and then they'd call for a time of prayer and thanksgiving. Congress would call for this. Fifteen times during the American Revolution. That is how John Adams explained the ragtag colonists defeating the most powerful military machine of that day, the British Army. You have to understand that we shouldn't have won the American Revolution. Looking at it naturally, you have a couple of, just, just, a, just a few ragtag colonists compared to the greatest military machine of the day, the British Army. But yet the colonists prevailed. Why? Because of prayer and fasting and trust in Almighty God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Glory to God. George Washington wrote a letter to one of his fellow generals saying, and I'm paraphrasing this now. He said, if one has seen what we have seen in the battles, beating insurmountable odds and not thank God, that person would have to be wicked. George Washington saw some things on the battlefield that should not have ought to happen in favor of the colonists. But they did happen because Congress had called for prayer and fasting. And God moved. Can you say amen? Amen. It's interesting. John Adams, the second president, listened to a letter that he wrote. He said, you need the Holy Ghost. There can be no legitimate government unless it is administered by the Holy Ghost. He could have been a Holy Ghost preacher and he was the second president of the United States. Oh, that we'd have a president like that again. And not just a president, but a vice president and all the way down in the Congress and the, the, you know, the Senate and the House, you see, all the way down to the dog catcher. Amen. Yeah. Amen. By 1815, there had been 14, uh, 1400 government officials, officials had issues called, had issued calls to prayer. By 1815, Government officials 1,400 times had issues called had issued calls to prayer. Did you get that? This was being done again and again. That's unheard of today. It's unheard of. That's even unheard of, really, by church leaders calling people to fast and pray. We can't fast and pray. We got to get you out in 30 minutes so we can please you. No, that's not how this church runs. Did you hear what I just said? We're respectful of your time, but if the Holy Ghost is moving, we're going to stay till he's done. If that cramps your lunch, your lunch plans, that's, you'll just have to take that up with the Holy Ghost. I don't mean that ugly, but that's the kind of man of God you want. You need somebody that's more concerned about what the Holy Ghost wants than whether or not you're going to get out on time. Can you say amen? The Congress had the first Bible printed in English in the United States for use in the public schools. The Congress had the first Bible printed in English in the United States for use in the public schools. The Congress had the first Bible printed in English in the United States for use in the public schools. The Congress had the first Bible printed in English in the United States for use in the public schools. The Congress had the first Bible printed in English in the United States for use in the public schools. In case you're not getting it, I'll say it again. The Congress had the first Bible printed in English in the United States for use in the public schools. 
I said the Congress had the first Bible printed in English in the United States for use in the public schools. That goes back to the founders. The founders, the first Congress, I'm telling you, had the Bible printed in English in the United States for use in the public schools. The Bible should still be in the public schools today. But we've let some loudmouth atheists in 1963 take that away from us. And it irritates me. I'm aggravated about it. Of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, 29 held degrees from seminaries. Did you hear me? When you see that picture of the Declaration of Independence signing, the attention comes to, typically to, uh, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was a Christian. Loved the Lord. Study it out, you'll see. Don't take what some professor from some university is saying that, now go back to the original documents and you'll see Thomas Jefferson he was a complex individual all right I'll agree to that but he was a Christian and he loved the Lord 56 of the signers of the Declaration of Independence of those 56 signers 29 held degrees in seminaries in the picture of the when they signed the Declaration of Independence most people that look at that picture they can recognize Franklin and they can recognize Jefferson And of that group of 56 that's in that room, yeah, Jefferson and Franklin were the least quote-unquote religious. You know why that is? It's because the other, most of all the other people in that room were theologians. It would be like putting me in a room, now I have a math degree, I'm a math major, I have a math degree. But if you put me in the room with Albert Einstein and Isaac Newton, now even though... I'm pretty good in math. I'm going to be the least mathematical in that room of three. Is that right? And then if all you do is talk about me for 200 years and you don't talk about Isaac Newton and Einstein, you're going to get the, you know, you're going to, you're going to lose the impact of what's standing in that room. Did you get what I just said? And that's what, ha- what has happened with the founders is you put so much emphasis on Franklin and on On Jefferson, they were the least religious of that group of 56. It's because most of the rest of them held held degrees in theology. They loved Jesus. They were they were. Do you did you get what I just said? Listen to the quotes from other the uh, some of these other founding fathers. Listen to, because we talk a lot about Jefferson and we talk a lot about uh, 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 Franklin, but what about some of the others? I dare say most of you couldn't name hardly, if you were like me before I studied this out, you couldn't name these other founders. You might get one or two of them, but what about John Witherspoon? He published the first family Bible for America. And he said this, he's sitting in that room, the founders, 56, signed the Declaration of Independence. He said, no salvation in any other but Jesus Christ. You will perish without being clothed in his robe of righteousness. Dr. Benjamin Rush sat in that room, giving you a little history lesson here today. The church needs a history lesson. The churches of the United States need a history lesson. 
Dr. Benjamin Rush said John Adams and uh, or, or rather John Adams said Ben Rush, along with George Washington and Benjamin Franklin, were the three most notable founding fathers. So John Adams, the second president, said Benjamin Rush, George Washington and Ben Franklin were the three most notable founders. But yet we've heard very little about Benjamin Rush. He was the father of public schools and known as the father of American medicine. A great doctor. He started the Sunday school movement in America. He was an abolitionist. He was against slavery. And by the way, I was taught in high school and college that most of the founders were for slavery. You get in and study it and you'll see that the opposite is quite the truth. They were against slavery as a whole body. Can you say amen? And while I'm on it, you know, they say, well, you know, those founders and, and back before them, the pilgrims, you know, the pilgrims were Christians. Did you know that? I said they were. Oh, they stole land from the Indians, the Native Americans. Go study it out. The Christians, the Christian pilgrims, the Christian, you know, the, the Christian, the Christians didn't do that. Can you say amen? Study it out. I don't have time to get off, get off on that. But see, I was taught these things in high school and college. But when you get in and you really, really study the truth of it, you'll see that a lot of things we've been told isn't so. Against slavery. Benjamin Rush started a Bible society. He said if we can get signer of the the, uh, Declaration of Independence. He started a Bible society. He said if we can get Bibles into the hands of every American to read, they'll become Christians. And if they obey the Bible, all of our social problems will be solved. And then he said this, nothing but the blood of Jesus will wash away my sins. Actually, the first public school law ever passed in America placed vital importance on children being able to read and understand the Bible so they would not be deceived by the devil. Robert Sherman, a theologian and one of the framers of the Bill of Rights, said this, God commands men to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. These are signers of the Declaration. Just some of them. I'm not, I don't have time to go through them all. Charles Carroll lived, of, the, of all the signers, he lived to be the longest, or the oldest, into his 90s. And they asked him a question as he, was, you know, get, as he was getting up in years. They said, are you ready to meet God when you die? And he said, yes. On the mercy of my Redeemer, I rely for salvation based on his merits. And then he wrote his final thoughts right before he died. And he said, I am grateful to Almighty God for the blessings with, with which through Jesus Christ our Lord has conferred on my beloved country. Sounds like these are Christians to me, not a bunch of deists or atheists. There's a book that has come out, The Godless Constitution, came out many years ago. And I think two authors, the authors were two uh, professors from Cornell University. It's interesting as you read their book and you go back, see David Barton, when he writes a book, I told you at the beginning, there's about a third of the book that, that, that backs up everything he says. These Cornell uh, professors that wrote this uh, book the godless constitution you know how many footnotes they have documenting sources zero i said zero they've got nothing to back up what they're saying in their book the godless constitution we need to do some studying or we can let the devil take our freedom right away from us and we're we're, we're seeing that happen even as we speak in this nation 
Francis Hopkinson, who designed the first American flag, designed it. One of the first federal judges appointed by George Washington. He was a church, no, a signer of the Declaration. He was a church music director, choir leader, and organist. And in 1767, he uh, put together the first American hymnal where he put the entire book of Psalms to music. And it, it's a big, thick book. Samuel Adams, the father of American Revolution, he said this. He's known as the father of the American Revolution. Samuel Adams, he said, I rely on the merits of Jesus Christ for the pardon of all my sins. Roger, Roger Sherman, who was also in that room. See, all the attention goes to Jefferson and Franklin, but what about all these other guys? How many did we say held... 29 of them held theological degrees from seminaries. Roger Sherman, known as the master builder of the Constitution, actually, he instituted the three uh, branches of government, executive, legislative, and judicial. You know where they got that? They got that from the Bible. You know why our system is so great here? Because it's based on the Bible. He was a framer of the Bill of Rights, which are the first ten amendments. He was a long-term member of Congress. This is what this Robert Roger Sherman did. He consulted the Bible at the, at the beginning of each session of Congress. He consulted the Bible. He, he, he believed it should be read cover to cover annually. He would buy a new Bible at the beginning of each session of Congress. He would read it daily. He would write notes in the margin, things he felt the Lord was showing with him, and then present it to one of his children upon return home from Congress. He had 15 children, so that was quite a task. Went through a lot of Bibles. And he wrote this. He wrote this. He said, God commands all men everywhere to repent, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and has assured us that all who repent and believe on Jesus, you know, will be saved. And we could go through other presidents. I'm just sticking with the founders, but I do want to come down to Harry Truman, if I might. Anybody ever hear of Harry Truman? He made the statement. He said, this is a Christian nation. And you know there's 300 court cases that say America is a Christian nation. And America started out that way. You know Harry Truman called all the attorney generals of each state together. And he made this statement. He said the fundamental basis of the Bill of Rights comes from the Bible. I don't think we emphasize that enough these days. You know President Truman's Christmas addresses were... We're so powerfully based on the word of God, they almost felt like you should give an altar call at the end. We don't have that anymore today, do we? Quite the opposite. This nation was founded on Jesus. It was founded on God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. It wasn't founded on Allah. Wasn't founded on Muhammad. It was founded on Jesus. That's just the facts. Search history and you'll see. 
Since the days of George Washington, listen to this, the Bible, and actually before Washington, the Bible was an integral part of the public classroom. Until 1963, the year that I was born. I was born in 63. One loudmouth atheist, Madeline Murray O'Hare. I actually, I had never done this before, but I actually went to YouTube and I listened to some of the things she said. You can find it on YouTube. And I'll say it again. A loudmouth atheist. How many of you know Jesus loves her, right? She could have repented and got saved, but, but she didn't. A vile woman, empowered by the devil. I said empowered by the devil, yielding to the devil, rose up and opened her mouth and started yapping. And along with some other things that were going on in that day, she rose to the forefront. And in the case known as Murray versus Curlett, and there were some other lawsuits there back then that she was behind and involved with. It led to a landmark Supreme Court ruling ending official Bible reading in American public schools. And a year earlier, prayer had been deemed unconstitutional in public schools. What would the founders have said about that? I'll tell you what they would have said. They would have thrown a fit. I said in 1963, the founders would have thrown a fit. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin. Oh, yeah. And all these other guys, not to mention all these other guys I read to you about, they would have thrown a fit in 1963. Madeline Murray, they would have thrown an absolute fit over her. And it wouldn't have stood. I said it wouldn't have stood. I said if the founders had been here, it wouldn't have stood. The founders would have no problem Starting the day out at school with reading from scripture, from the Bible. They would have no problem with praying in the name of Jesus. See how far we've come from that? And in 1962, 63, some Christians spoke up, but not near enough. And that's really been the problem over the last years that I, as I look at it, is we just don't have enough Christians standing up and taking their stand. And so the devil's been able to come into this nation and do what he's done. Over, I believe it's over half of the Christians don't even vote. It's sad, isn't it? I said it's sad. If the Christians would just would just pray, seek God, and go vote the Bible, this nation could be turned around. It's taken a generation to get it to where it's at now. It could be turned around. It would take some time, but it could be done. Through prayer and through voting and involvement. Did you hear me? I preached a message along these lines one time years ago, not this one, but one similar, and I had a person come up to me. They didn't come up to me. They sent me an email, and they said, you shouldn't be teaching these kinds of things from the pulpit. 
Well, you see, they really swayed me. These are the kinds of things that need to be taught. We've allowed the devil to take the nation away from us. I do believe that everybody should have the right to choose whether or not they want to serve Jesus. God doesn't push himself off on anybody. But we shouldn't allow secular non-believers take our rights away from us. I'm not going to push Jesus down anybody's throat because he wouldn't do that. But I'm going to make a bold stand for him no matter what it costs me if I have to go to prison. But this, And no matter who walks away from me, I'm going to stick with Jesus. This nation was founded on him. And that's why it's been so great. Now I'll tell you something else while we're at it. One reason that this nation has stood as long as it has. I'm convinced of this. It's because of those founders. And the time they spent in prayer. And the time they sought God. And and, and the things that God saw them do. And the commitments they made. I'm convinced that because of these men that we read about here today. And others that really loved the Lord Jesus. It's because of them that this nation has stood as long as it has. We've been under the same document, the Constitution, for over 200 years. There's no other nation that you can say that about. Because it was founded on the Word of God. What is the source of these problems? The Bible simply talks about if the people of God stray from the ancient paths, there's going to be problems. And we've we've strayed from the ancient paths and we allowed one loudmouth atheist to take it away from us you know the public education system has never been the same since 1963 and this nation hasn't been the same we've always had our problems but test scores have plummeted 10 years later abortion was instituted and now with the same sex marriage You know, I've said this many times and I'll say it again. When, when God was asked to leave and actually not asked to leave, he was booted out of the school system, public school system. When he left, light left. Now, I know there's some good Christian teachers and I taught in the public school system and, and I've been there. And there is some flickers of light there, but most of it lays in darkness. I'm not against the public school system. I'm a product of it. And I I tell you what, I'm proof that you can go through that system and come out believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. But you have to be solid in what you believe. But when when God left, because he's a gentleman, when they booted him, he left. When he left, light left. Because the Bible says the entrance of your word gives light. And you see, this really shows up in the universities, because I know I'm a, I went through the university as well. And I've studied this, and, and this really shows up in the universities. And you know most of the universities in this nation started out as Christian? Strong Christian. 
But now approximately 80% of Christian youth who go to, to college and university in the United States will deny their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ after going through the system. Why is that? Because, you see, this, has been, this cycle's been going on of the public system producing people that don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, etc. It's become more secular and more secular and so on and so forth. And you've got it to the point now where professors get up and some of them will say, how many of you in here believe on the Lord Jesus? And hands will go up and they'll say, by the time I get done with you this semester, your hand won't go up. And eight out of ten of them, Christian youth that sit there, they stop believing on the Lord Jesus. Because of these secular professors that don't know God. They don't know history. They don't know Jesus. And when you put that, here's the real problem, when you put that together with pulpits that aren't teaching doctrine. So the youth don't ever get to hear doctrine. They just get to hear a little mamby-pamby sermon from a pablum-pushing pulpiteer. And they don't ever teach messages like this from the pulpit. I wish when I was a kid somebody would have told me this, what I've told you today. And don't take my word for it. Go study it for yourself. But nobody ever taught me this. But you see, you got... Pastors in this land, they're not teaching doctrine. And so the youth aren't prepared. And so when they, when they go to college, they're not prepared to answer those professors. Come on now. And you have what we've got now. Has this been sobering? I want to close with this. I want you to listen very carefully. I hope that what I'm about to read hits all of us right between the eyes. You really need to listen now. If you didn't get anything else, you need to listen now. We all need to listen to this. Listen to this. For 150 years in America, state legislative sessions just after the elections would begin with a preacher Preaching the Bible to the legislators, giving God's guidance on political issues. Okay? So each state, when they'd go to the state house or whatever, you know, and they'd, before they'd begin the very first session, they'd have a preacher come in and preach the Word of God. And give the legislators who had been elected guidance on the political issues. And so you'd have the preacher standing up at the lectern. You'd have the legislators sitting on the main floor and then up in the balcony. You'd have those people, the citizens that had elected these folks on the main floor to office. And the preacher, Matthias Burnett, pastor of the First Baptist Church in Norwalk, Connecticut, stepped to the lectern and among other things, he looked up at those people in the balcony who had just elected those people sitting on the floor. And this is what he said to the people in the balcony, the voter. Here's what he said. Listen to this. Consider well the important trust which God has put into your hands. To God and posterity... That means the future generations. To God and posterity, you are accountable. 
for your rights and your rulers. Let not your children have reason to curse you for giving up those rights and prostrating those institutions which your fathers delivered to you. Look well to the characters and qualifications of those who elect and raise to office and look well to the characters and qualifications of those you elect and raise to office and places of trust. Let me say that again. Look well to the characters and qualifications of those you elect and raise to offices and places of trust. Think not that your interests will be safe in the hands of the weak and ignorant are faithfully managed by the impious the dissolute and the, the dissolute and the immoral think not that men who acknowledge not the providence of god nor regard his laws will be uncorrupt in office think about that think not that men who Think not that men who acknowledge not the providence of God nor regard his laws will be uncorrupt in office. I know that the way that he, very educated man, it's hard to follow, but did you hear what he just said? Think not that men who acknowledge not the providence of God nor regard his laws will be uncorrupt in office. Firm in defense of the righteous cause against the oppressor are resolutely opposed the torrent of iniquity. Did you get that? Watch over your liberties and privileges, civil and religious, with a careful eye. I seldom do this, but this is so important. Listen to this. Consider well the important trust which God has put into your hands. To God and the future generations, you are accountable for your rights and your rulers. We're accountable for who sits in the Oval Office. We are. Oh, well, God, the, you know, the heart, God, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Solomon said that about himself. And his heart, when he said that, was in the hand of God. It doesn't mean every ruler, every ruler's heart is in the hand of God. It doesn't mean that all the president's hearts are in the hand of God. How many of you know we've got presidents whose heart aren't in the hand of God? Hmm? The voters... Put the president in there. You and I put him in there. And if we're not putting these people in the political offices, if we're not voting, if the righteous aren't voting, then the unrighteous are going to win. And so you have prayer kicked out. You have Bible kicked out of the public school. You've got abortion. You've got same-sex marriage. And the fault lays at the foot of the... Christian who is uninvolved. Consider well the important trust which God has put into your hands. To God and future generations you are accountable for your rights and your rulers. Let not your children have reason to curse you for giving up those rights. And prostrating those institutions which your fathers delivered to you. Think of that. Look well to the characters and qualifications of those you elect. And raised to office and places of trust. Think not that your interests will be safe in the hands of the weak and ignorant. 
are faithfully managed by the impious, the dissolute, and the immoral. Think not that men who acknowledge not the providence of God nor regard his laws will be uncorrupt in office. Firm in defense of the righteous cause against the oppressor, resolutely oppose the torrent of, the iniqui- of iniquity. Watch over your liberties and privileges, civil and religious, with a careful eye. Those are the words of Matthias Burnett. We need to get the righteous back in political authority in this country. This didn't happen overnight, so you're not, you're not going to be able to correct it overnight. But it can be corrected. But Christians are going to have to stand up and do something. Unless something changes in this nation, it's going to be difficult to do. But it can be done. I said it can be done. I said it can be done. Did you get anything out of this? Well... How do we want to do this? Uh, it seems like rather than breaking and coming back for an hour of prayer, just feel like I'm being led. Rather than doing that, I'm not going to keep you all for an hour. Don't don't get nervous. Although you ought to want to stay if the Holy Ghost was in it, but but I'll leave that between you and the Lord. Rather than doing that, let's let's just close with a few minutes of prayer right here. Is that all right with everybody? Unless you have to go to work or there's some kind of a medical issue. If that's not okay with you, I don't mean this ugly, but you're part of the problem in this nation. You still love me? Sometimes the words from this pulpit are blunt, but sometimes that's what we need to hear. If you need to go to work or something, you need to slip out. That's not a problem. But just stay in a few minutes to pray for the nation, I think, would be well served. Amen? Some of these men went through some, these founders. I just keep coming back to that in my heart. The reason the nation has stood as long as it has has been because of the founders. The founders who had a relationship with the Lord Jesus. Stand with me if you would. Just take the hand of the person next to you. I seldom read a prayer, but there's a prayer here that is on this sheet here that I think we ought to pray. And I'll just I'm just gonna read it from my heart. You agree with it? Pray for this nation. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today in the name of Jesus as a humble people. Desperate for your supernatural intervention on behalf of our beloved nation. First, we thank you for all the blessings you have bestowed on our land. Blessings that have allowed us to bring so much good and benefit to not only your own citizens, but also to the rest of the world. The very ideals upon which this country was founded were based on biblical truths No matter how some try to rewrite history to deny that very fact today. This is why our hearts are so broken over how you continue to be marginalized and dismissed by both 
our people, and our institutions. We're also saddened by the fact that your people have contributed greatly to the spiritual apathy that now engulfs us. Our satisfaction in remaining religious without being fully committed to living out the truths of your word has caused us to become co-conspirators with the forces of evil that are destroying us as a society. It is for this reason that we personally and collectively repent of our carnality and recommit ourselves to becoming visible and verbal disciples of Jesus Christ. Enable us by your Spirit to no longer be secret agent Christians, but to rather, but rather to publicly declare and live out your truth in a spirit of love so that you feel welcome in our country once again. Thank you for your promise to hear our prayers when we call to you with hearts of repentance and obedience. Which is how we are appealing to you today. Heavenly Father, on behalf of your church, we affirm afresh the priority you are to us. That you would fill every dimension of our lives. As we seek to bring you glory through the advancement of your kingdom in our personal lives, our family lives, and in the lives of our churches and our government leaders. We confidently invite heaven's intervention into all the affairs of our nation. And we praise you in advance for your answer. And again, in Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people that agreed with that real loud said, Amen. 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 Amen.